see you uh, today. Uh, I have asked you to pray for Rex Shoreman in times past. He's a member of our class. He's uh, in the Air Force Reserves and on his third tour and is now in Afghanistan. And in March, it looks like, Lord willing, he'll be back. So he's on the downward run back home, and we hear from him fairly often. And uh, he asks me to thank the class for praying for him. He's walking with the Lord, has a good chaplain there. They go to an orphanage and minister to Afghan kids over there as representatives of the United States, but much more importantly, as representatives of the Lord Jesus. So he's making good use of his time. Please continue to pray for Rex, and it'll be wonderful to have him back in our class, Lord willing, in just a few short months. Well, listen, we are uh, going to finish our time in the Psalms today. And then next week, Brother Chuck will do an intro to our next book, Micah. So that's what we'll study. Oh, is it Malachi? No, Micah. Micah, Micah. Yeah. Or is it Matthew? No. No, it starts with an M. Choose your poison. Uh, it's actually Micah. And uh, we don't know how long we'll be in it. We'll just go along and see. If you would like to read in advance, that would be a wonderful thing for you to do. But today, uh, we're going to take a look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34, because last week was Psalm 33. Today, Psalm 34. Now, if you quickly look at it, you're going to see something that we lacked as we looked at last week's Psalm. Uh, Today, we have with certainty both the author and the circumstances under which he authored this psalm. I mentioned to you last week that though it's likely possible David wrote that psalm, 33, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it because David didn't write them all. He wrote most. Here, however, all questions are removed because it begins this way. A psalm of David. Not only do we now know we can attribute this psalm to him, we're even given a very helpful superscript that tells us the circumstances under which he wrote. Now, you need to know that before you even get to verse 1 is inspired scripture. So that's not an editorial comment by somebody. That's given under inspiration. Therefore, it must be important. Therefore, we're going to take a look at it. Look what it says. This is a Psalm of David. Circumstances, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, or you would say Abimelech, right? Do you want to go with Abimelech or Abimelech? Okay, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that. When in Texas, do as the Texans do, right? Good. Abimelech. David wrote this, when he feigned madness before this fellow, who, by the way, drove him away, and then David departed. So this is a description of an event recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning around verse 10. And I will summarize it for you, but you surely are free to look to it on your own. 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 10. Here's what happened. David is running from, what's the name of the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul had his emotional and spiritual ups and downs. 
on one occasion, he might have great affection for David. On another, he wants to kill him. Paranoid. And uh, this is one of those occasions. First Samuel chapter 21. David runs. That he runs is understandable. However, where he runs to is quite remarkable. He runs to the land of the Philistines, uh, specifically a place called Gath, G-A-T-H, hometown of Goliath. Goliath comes from God. That's where David goes. By the way, what happened to Goliath? Yeah, but who killed him? Yeah, so that's where David's going. David killed the hero of this people group, and David, running from Saul, is going to hide out amongst that people group. Whoa. That's unusual. First Samuel chapter 21 tells us that the leader of that group of people, Philistines, is named Achish. Uh-oh. Error in the Bible. First Samuel 21 says his name is Achish. Psalm 34 says his name is Abimelech. Wow. And you trust the Bible? <laughs> Folks, that's what we can call an apparent discrepancy. What does that mean? It appears to be discrepant. In one case, his name is Achish, and in another, Abimelech. Critics of the Bible don't see apparent discrepancies. They persuade themselves of actual discrepancies. Those are people who, instead of letting the Bible scrutinize them, are scrutinizing it. They will never be able to resolve discrepancies. But we, Christians, are permitted uh, understanding there are apparent discrepancies in the Bible. Now, how do we resolve this one? Does anyone have an idea? Why is this leader's name in 1 Samuel 21, Achish, but here, Abimelech? Any, uh, uh, that is good. And what I, what I love, I, I want you to just feel free to just <laughs> yell out at any time. No, seriously, it's a free country. And your parents are here. It's okay. You, you know, you're... You're, it's their fault. It's their fault that you're this way. No, I know this lovely lady. And you don't ever have to guess at what she's thinking. Okay, he had a name change. That's a theory. Dan? First name, middle name. Good. Another approach. Yes, ma'am. You win the prize. Uh, the, was, was one of the names a title? Yes. Achish is his proper name. Abimelech is his title. Philistine leadership was prone to take this title, Abimelech, which means my father is king. Stuff like that. Abimelech. It's the equivalent of Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh was the title. In many different pharaohs, their proper name was different. It's the equivalent of Caesar in ancient Rome. There's Augustus Caesar. There's Julius Caesar. Caesar's not the last name. Caesar's the title. How about in, uh, in Germany, Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm. For instance, Wilhelm is his name. Kaiser is the, is the title. By the way, it comes from Caesar. So there's, this is an apparent discrepancy, easily resolved by doing a little study, for crying out loud. Uh, so the point is David runs to this place. Here's what happens. He thinks he's going to be incognito. No way. People see him. Philistine people. Oh, by the way, this is another sidelight. Um, 
Um, the Philistines are Indo-European. They're not Arabic, Philistines. They are a seafaring people who come from the Greek islands around the Aegean Sea. So that's east of the land of Canaan. They got on boats. They sailed, I mean west, they sailed east to present-day Israel and landed on the Mediterranean coast, the western part of modern-day Israel, on the Mediterranean coast. Why did they do this? Some people say earthquakes, famine, quite an advanced people group. They were metallurgists. They could fashion iron chariots. We read about this. Uh, it posed quite a problem to the Israelites, the uh, weaponry of the Philistines. So they settled, and there are five major Philistine cities. Gath is one of them. Uh, Ekron, another. Um, what are some others? Does anyone know? Ashdod. Ashdod. The reason I bring that up is that's been in the news uh, when, when there are big ships that want to unload cargo at Gaza, the Israeli government requires they go to Ashdod where they can do security. That's the Philistine city. I mentioned Gaza. You've heard of Gaza? The Gaza Strip. Gaza is in the news quite a lot today. Um, that, uh, that, that, that's Philistine territory. In fact, the term Palestinian or Palestine comes from the Philistines. How did that happen? Well, the Israel, uh, Israelites revolted against Roman rule, and the Romans don't like that. So they do what Romans do. They killed a bunch of Jews and burned a bunch of others and stuff like that. And then they said, uh, don't do this again. And just to humiliate you, we're going to change the name of your so-called promised land. We're going to name it after your perennial enemies. We're going to call it Palestinia. After the Philistines. And the name is stuck down to this very day. But the Philistines were not Arab-speaking peoples at all. They were Indo-European. It's just uh, ironic to me that the Palestinians and, the, you know, two-state solution, Israel, Palestine, the whole deal. Good night. Those are Greek sailors. All right. So anyway, uh, David goes there. People say, oh, man, isn't that the guy? Who killed our big guy? That guy? That little Jewish kid? Yeah, that's him. Now, I'm telling you, it's him. He's the guy. You, did you hear that proverb about, you know, one guy kills a hundred. He kills like thousands. That's us. He kills us. That guy. He's, that's David. That's David. That's the Hebrew guy. You I think you're right. I mean, it doesn't look like a Philistine. That's him. We better tell the king. So that's what they do. They go to Achish. Achish calls for David. David realizes, I'm dead meat. He's going to kill me. So you can hear him thinking. He comes up with a brilliant, he's street smart. He comes up with this brilliant idea. He said, I'm going to act crazy. Because so a crazy person won't be a, a threat to the Philistine king. So so First Samuel twenty one says he he scribbled on the on the gates 
on the doorposts of their gates. Now, you've got to get Middle Eastern, ancient gates to get this. It's not a gate like a wrought iron, you know, open the gate, go through. Big structure, stone, with rooms, wide guard towers. This is where commerce was conducted. If you go to the Middle East today, you can see the remains of ancient city gates. So you can see him. He's scribbling. What's he scribbling? Who knows? Crazy stuff. Not only is he scribbling, he's dribbling. <laughs> That's what it says in First Samuel 21. I'm not making this up. He dribbles saliva down his beard. Achish looks at him. The king looks at him. He's, he's scribbling and dribbling. And, and, he's saying, and he's saying to the people, Here's what he says. This is kind of a paraphrase, but he actually says this. Like, I don't have enough nuts running around here. You got to bring me another. I'm not making this up. You read it. First Samuel 21. So he says, get, get rid of him. David said, I am the coolest dude on earth. Are you kidding me? I just came up with this. I don't even know where it came from. I am something else. And then David left and hid out in a cave in the Judean wilderness. What a deception. What a brilliant deception. There's more. Let me tell you what he did before he even got to this point. He's running from Saul. He goes up to Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, the old city, um, to the east is a valley, the Kidron Valley. And then you run into a ridge, an elevated ridge called the Mount of Olives. It's not one peak, it's a ridge. And just to the north of the Mount of Olives is an ancient place called Nob, N-O-B. So if you're in Jerusalem, you could see it diagonally. You're standing there and you look. And so it would be northeast, about a mile and a half on a hill there. Uh, it's the site of present-day Hebrew University of Israel. It's a great school, Hebrew University. There it is. Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Nob. David goes there. Who lives there? Well, it was a religious community of priests. You know, like priests and Levites, those kinds of priests. The head priest is a guy named Ahimelech, not Abimelech, Ahimelech. He sees David. He gets a little nervous. He knows something's wrong. Why? Because the entourage that should have been there with David ain't. It's David and his marginalized street guys, his men. But, he, but, 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 but the priest knows this guy is in the king's court. He's close to King Saul. Where's all the royal entourage people? He asked David about it. David said, shh, shh. Secret mission. Shh. Nobody knows. I'm on a secret mission sent by the king. He doesn't want to tell him King Saul wants to kill him. He lies. He tells the priest of Israel, got to be on hush hush. Says the priest, so here's the deal. I wonder if you could help me out. Because this is like a top secret deal, I couldn't pack up any vittles, no food. Got anything? Priest scratches his head and you go, yeah, I don't know, David. Uh, there is something, but I don't think it'll. The only thing I have is, is consecrated bread. 
Consecrated bread consisted of 12 loaves, which were to be produced by the priests for every Sabbath or Shabbat, put in the holy place of the temple, that a whole bunch of people are not supposed to go, as a symbol, 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes of ancient Israel, as a symbol of God's provision. You know, give us this day our daily bread. But you know what? You're not supposed to mess with that. That's consecrated. Priest tells David that. He said, but you're like, you're David, right? I'll tell you what. Maybe we could, we could bend the rules a little bit. Can you guarantee me that you and your men are ritually pure? What does that mean? They hadn't been recently with a woman. That's what it means. That's what you women do to us. It's a joke. It's a little It's a joke you didn't find funny. Yeah, so David says, yeah, we, we've had nothing to do with them. No, no women stuff. This is a mission. We're on the seek. We've got no time for women. The priest said, okay, in that case, you're ceremonially undefiled. I'll give you the bread. David's going, oh, my goodness. I am, like, better than I thought. I am so good. Let me keep going. Oh, by the way, Mr. Priest, because I had to leave in haste undercover, you know what I mean? I don't have a weapon. I, can, you, can you take care of me? The priest says, well, there, there is a little something with which you are quite familiar. Goliath's sword. Would you like that? Oh, you mustn't. Okay. By deception, David gets food. By deception, David gets a weapon. By deception, he pulls off this charade with the Philistines to save his own life. Those are the circumstances under which he writes this psalm, Psalm 34. Knowing this will help you understand, and me, the content of the psalm. What happened? David found out, not only did all that carnal, fleshly, streetwise self-preservation account for the fact that I am alive and well today, it was in spite of it that God delivered me. I did not deliver myself. He did. And in spite of all this, at best, all I gave him was a cursory word. Oh, God, help me, save me, deliver me. Now, we'll talk more later, but I've got to work out my plan. That's how we do it. David realizes, oh, no, I've made a false correlation between my wit and wisdom, my capacity to take care of myself, and the fact that I'm taken care of. That is a false conclusion. It was God who did it, and in spite of me, I did wrong. I'm, I'm just a lying fool. You know what he did? Um, He committed superstitious behavior. I'll tell you what I mean. Let's do an experiment. I'm going to do this. I'll do this, okay? Maybe they'll do this. When I do this, I would like you to cough, okay? Okay, you ready? Here we go. Cool. Oh, my goodness. Every time I do this, you do. Wow. 
So I'm making a correlation between me doing this and you coughing. All that's happening is that the two events are coinciding in time. And I'm coming to the false conclusion that I empowered it. That's called superstitious behavior. David is saying, oh, my goodness, I'm safe. And he's making the false correlation that his safety is due to all of his stuff. False correlation. Look, I'm watching this award show last night. It was NFL awards, you know, before Super Bowl and stuff like that. Yeah, it is, you know, like the number one offensive lineman, defensive guy, MVP, stuff like that. So a guy gets the award, whoever, they, and all of them, they get up there, <clears throat> and the guy will say, you know, I, I want to be a role model. I want to be, a, I want to be an inspiration to the youth of America. Uh, I want them to know that uh, whatever you put your mind to, you just believe in yourself. You can accomplish great things and get awards like me. See, that is a person who's committing superstitious behavior. What about all the rest of the people out there who didn't win his award, who also put their mind to it, who were just as passionate and committed and disciplined in the whole deal? Why him and not them? Now, I don't know this, but I'm not going to resolve the question by saying your mind power got you there. Good night. You can have all the mind power you want. All you need is a, is a, uh, a torn Achilles, whatever you call it, or a broken ankle or a concussion and, you can take your mind and, man, you're not playing the NFL football. You're, you'd be selling insurance or something. See, that's a false connection. Why do, why do people do that? Why do we do that? Because we're proud. And we would rather boast. If there's a good outcome in our life, we would rather take credit for it than give credit to God. See, it's superstition. Now, it's in that context that David realized, oh, no. I can't be doing that. Okay, that being the case, take a look now at verse 1. I'll bless the Lord at all times. Good night. I'm on the run from Saul. I'm playing games with the king of Philistine. I got to deceive myself to get food and a weapon and all the kind of stuff. I did acknowledge God. I know he's there. I said, help. Then I went on to try to help myself. Because circumstances distracted me from this very thing, and that is blessing the Lord at all times. I'm over that. I will not let my inclination to bless God be a function of vacillating circumstances. I will praise him at all times. I will bless him at all. Why? Because those circumstances come and go and I have my ups and downs. He is the same. My deliverance is not due to my wit and wisdom. My deliverance is due to the fact that God is consistently true to his own character. Therefore, I will bless the Lord at all times. And not only that, I'm going to vocalize some stuff. See, his praise shall continually, not partially, continually be in my mouth. Whether I'm on, someone's trying to kill me, I'm hungry, I can't defend myself, I'm in a foreign land, people hate my guts, and they know you ain't around here, are you, boy? No matter what it is, I'm going to vocalize my, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. In other words, it's not just an internal thing going on, a private thing. Prayer can be quite private. Praise is a little different. Praise has to be publicized. I'm going to 
put verbal shoe leather to what's happening on the inside, what I want people to hear about what God has done for me. Therefore, he says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord so that the humble will hear it, you see, and rejoice. You know what David is saying? Something happened to me. Oh, my goodness. Something happened to me. I, at best, gave lip service to God, but I'm his. He's mine. He took care of me in spite of me. He delivered me with a deliverance I cannot even explain. I surely do not deserve it. It wasn't attributable to anything I did. In fact, it was in spite of what I did. It was because of who God is. He is a deliverer of those who are his. Uh, 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 Therefore, I want to boast about him so that the humble could hear it. So that implies he's verbalizing something, can hear it and rejoice. Now, wait just a second. If what God did for David is personal to him, how can you rejoice in it? You know what David is saying? What he did for me only exemplifies what he's willing to do for you because that's what he done is made of. He's a deliverer. He didn't deliver me because of any virtue or good thing in me. On the contrary, are you kidding me? I'm an adulterer. I plotted the murder of the woman I slept with. I'm on the run. I'm deceiving. I'm playing all these kinds of games and stuff like that. Look what he did for me. It's all grace and mercy. And I want you, humble ones, to hear about it so that you'll be motivated to rejoice because it isn't about you. It is about the one you call upon. Folks, your personal testimony is wonderful, but if it's, a, it's of absolutely no value, if Jesus saved you and nobody else, if you say Jesus saved me from my sin, what good is that unless he's willing to be a savior for others as well? That's why David is saying, I'm going to publicize what God did to me to such an extent that the humble will hear it and rejoice. Now, does your Bible render humble in a different way to say something else? No, it's a different place. The humble, afflicted. Yeah, yeah, so listen, here's the deal. This does not mean humble in the sense of humble versus pride. Oh, I'm sorry. We're in verse 2. Verse 2. Daniel, we aren't making, we aren't, we aren't going too far. Do you have that in yours? My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Then this next phrase, the humble. And some people have the afflicted. We're past that. Yeah, we're past that. Yeah. But anyway, look, here's the deal. It does not mean humble in contrast to proud here. It means humble in the sense of afflicted. That's a good rendering. <clears throat> Literally in the Hebrew, it means those whose hands are tied and whose head is fallen. Hands are tied in the sense that I'm needy. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I'm... <laughs> I'm in bondage. My hands are, they're tied behind my back to the extent, I can't help myself. My countenance is, I'm down and in chains. And I, David is saying, I must loudly tell people of the deliverance with which I was delivered so that you who are at the end of yourself, you don't have any resource. Your, your hands are tied. You can hear of what God did to me and he's willing to do it for you and therefore you can, you can rejoice. That's what he's doing right there. 
And by the way, do you see the word boast? Now we're on that word boast. It's a Hebrew word, halal, from which we get the word praise. Halal, praise. For instance, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are called the halal or praise psalms. And yes, you mentioned rightly the word hallelujah. Hallel. Boast or praise. Hallelujah. Yahweh. That's what hallelujah means. Praise Yahweh. Praise Almighty God. So David is saying here, I'm done praising myself for my own initiative, creativity, and resourcefulness. I'm done taking credit. This is not mind power. This is not because I believed in myself. Good night. My confidence in myself sent me on a deceptive course of life in the shadows, avoiding the God of light. Oh, now my praise will be with reference to the Lord so that people will not be directed to, I did this, I did that. No, he did this for me. He was at his best when I was at my worst. You don't have to be at your best. You better stop believing in yourself. You're a creep. You're like me, David says. You want to be the master of your own destiny. You want to be the God on the throne of your own life. You want to produce certain outcomes through your own strength and resources. You got none. You're not even guaranteed the next breath, the next inhalation. How dare you think you can appreciably change your circumstances by putting your mind? We're putting, we're giving this message to our school kids every day. We're persuading them that they're God. That they can pull off. Only he could. David says, no, I, that's me. I'm done boasting about my own stuff. Good night. I got a lot of good stuff. I got all kinds of, no, my praise will be with reference to God, the God who even the afflicted can hear about, know about, call upon and rejoice. But David said, I don't only want them to rejoice. I want them to magnify him with me. Look at verse three. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Why does he say that? You know, there's something about knowing the Savior. Though it's deeply personal, wonderfully personal, you want to publicize it. Can you imagine God saying, you are a wretch. You sin in thought, in word, in deed. I don't. Therefore, you and I have nothing in common. Not only that, you, in sinning, owe me a debt. You cannot pay it. I will. I have. I did. Accept it. Accept him. I forgive you. I adopt you. I don't see you as a wretch anymore. I see you as a child. Oh, and by the way, keep it to yourself. That's a commandment of God everyone here would have to disobey. We couldn't do it. So there's something about the personal experience with the Savior that motivates us not to privatize it, but to publicize it. That's why David says, magnify the Lord. I can myself. Magnify the Lord with me. That's what he says. Let us exalt his name together. To magnify something is to make it larger. Wait a second. How do you, how do you make God who's infinitely 
without bounds large, how do you enlarge him? Listen to me. He's not that large in the minds of many of the people whom he has made. In fact, he's minimized. So I was watching another award show. I do it for you. It's to get illustrations. I don't like it. I'm doing it for you. And so it was like a singing thing or whatever the deal was. So someone gets up there and says, and you've heard this before. You know, first of all, first, I want to thank God. And the, and the gal he's sleeping with and to whom he's not married is right there in the front. How do I know this? Am I the FBI? You don't have to be. I mean, the sins of many people of notoriety are no longer hidden sins. They're just in your face. I mean, there's always been sin. When I was a kid, we used to be ashamed of it. Now you boast about it, see. Boast about it. So, so I'm thinking, you know, you think you just impressed God. You know, throw the dog a bone. I want to thank God. But that didn't impress God. If you de-God God, God is supposed to have mastery. Well, that guy's the master of his own deal. I know God said don't sleep with someone who's not your wife, but it feels good. Therefore, I'll do it. First, I want to thank God. Come on. So you know what that person has done? That person has not magnified. That person has minimized God. So what's the job of the one who's been, like David, rescued? Magnify him. And call people. You know what someone else said? Well, first I want to thank the big guy upstairs. That's called blasphemy. The creator of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords. The one who spoke all things into existence and the power of his word. The one who is the Alpha and Omega, does not change through time, will never leave us or forsake us. The one who has infinite power, who takes counsel in no one else with regard to the outworking of his will. That is not the big guy upstairs. That's Almighty God before we fall in praise and worship. So, yeah, God has to be magnified. David says, you who have received from him... Call people to join in and magnify. Let's exalt. Let's lift him up together. Then he says, verse 4, I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me. And that is a simplified formula for success. I sought him. He heard me. He delivered me. That's it. Not. I sought him, you know. Then I went off and did my own thing to try to take care of myself. Because if I don't, nobody else will, including this unseen God. I saw him. You know, I prayed before lunch. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. You know this kind of stuff? <clears throat> and then I went off and did my own. No, no. That's not the formula. For Here it is. See, there's no, there's no I. I sought the Lord. That's all. I needy. I sought the, I sought him. He, what's his, he answered me. What did he do? He delivered me. That's it. If you cannot explain your life in those terms, you are not redeemed. You may think you're saved, but you're not. I sought the Lord, but then I got baptized, or I went on a mission trip, or I put money in the plate, or I tried to do good deeds to the poor. And that's why God delivered me. I sought the Lord. What would you offer? Nothing! A hand with nothing in it. Needing to be filled. 
buckets with holes in them. I sought the Lord with nothing but debt due to sin. What did he do? He answered me. And he delivered me. That's it. If you cannot explain your present life situation in light of that formula, you're probably not redeemed. Please don't leave this place without the Redeemer. So David says what he says in verse 4, verse 5. They looked, all people like David, David, they looked to him and were radiant. Oh my goodness. It has to do with the countenance, one's face. Have you ever seen someone depressed? Good night. You can tell a depressed adult without asking them. This is like the face of Moses that shone when he was in the presence of God. Those who seek him, their face are written. And not only that, they'll never be ashamed. <gasps> hey, have you ever had anyone say, hey, you know, that uh, religious stuff, that's cool if it makes you happy. You know what they're really saying? They're saying, uh, wow, I wish I could be as unsophisticated as you to believe in all that stuff. I'm just too smart. I'm too intellectual. You're like a Bible-thumping what? Bumpkin. Nobody could believe that stuff who has brain power. If you want to, that's fine. (laughs) But in the end, what? I'll tell you what the end is for those who are verse 4 people. I sought the Lord. He answered me. I'll tell you what the end is going to be. We see the deliverer face to face. And our face shines with joy and recognition. What? Not only am I not ashamed... I had no idea it was going to be as glorious as it in fact is. You are right. What you have in store for us are beyond human comprehension. Oh, God, to be in your prayer. I'm not disappointed. You know, reading that Bible, living by it, going to church, praying, doing all that stuff. A lot of people said, waste of time. What a poor investment. Get with the pro- Oh, I'm getting a return on my investment that does not give me cause for shame. You don't think you're going to be ashamed for having walked here with Jesus, do you? Don't do that to yourself. It's not true. Look at uh, verse 5. They looked to him and were ready. Look, look. They looked to him. You know, that's different than looking at him. People who look at him are not permitting him to evaluate them. They are evaluating him. So these are people who look to Shady Hook Elementary School and the tragic uh, death of 20 children. And they say, God, I'm looking at you. You don't stack up. You failed. Where were you? Why? You don't get good grades. You can't do that. God is not subject to our review. We are subject to his. Those who refuse to look at him, but instead look to him. When you look to him, you are saying, you are high and lifted up. Oh God, I look to you as a, as a uh, dependent one. Needing an independent one as a needy one. Needing the all-sufficient one 
I'm not looking at you as if I'm on your level and can give you my approval or disapproval. Oh, God, I have your disapproval unless by mercy you look away from my sin because of the shed blood of your own son. I'm looking to you, not at you. Well, those people will never have a cause for shame. You know what David says, verse 6? This poor man cried. And who do you think the poor man is? It's him. Why doesn't he just say me? You want to know something? There's been enough David stuff. He realizes, good night, I've lived a David-centered life. When I'm hungry, I take care of my business. When I'm threatened, I take care of my business. And I'm good at it. You know, I got street sense. I can pull this off. I can get over. I can get out of anyone, whatever. Enough of David. Just the poor man. That's what he is. Poor, impoverished in all ways. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard, and the Lord saved him out of all his troubles. Do you know what has been extended to us is the overwhelming privilege of an audience with the king of kings. The poor man cried and the Lord heard. The poor man. Not the upper crust of society. The poor The poor man has an audience. The poor man can have the ear of the most high God. He cried. The Lord heard and saved him out of all his troubles. You know what that implies, folks? In the world, you and I will have troubles. I don't need to be saved out of troubles if there ain't none. It says right there, troubles. What is a good God? Let his people have troubles. <sighs> Apparently, you and I need them. What? To be more like him. Let's face it. When we don't have troubles, who are we holding on to? (laughs) So in the world you'll have trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues. Angel of the Lord. It's a military term. It's like a military formation. The angel of the Lord uh, erects a military formation around those who fear God. What, for what purpose? To rescue them. By the way, angel of the Lord. If I told you many times in the Old Testament that's a reference to the Lord Jesus, would you hate me? Good. Because it is. <laughs> and not in all cases, but in many cases, angel of Yahweh is the Lord himself. What do you mean the Lord? Listen to me. There are many in the Old Testament, many pre-incarnate uh, visitations and evidences of the Lord Jesus. What did pre-incarnate mean? It means before he got birthed as a baby with flesh. Pre, in, before that. What did he do before Bethlehem? You think he just sat around waiting for Christmas? <laughs> He's God. He's pre-existent. Angel. You know, here's the deal. Who else is the ever-present rescuing agent But the Lord, he was then and he are now. He's the ever-present rescuing agent. Oh, taste. Oh, my goodness. Every time I do this, someone sneezes. That is unbelievable. (laughs) I better stop doing this. See, that's superstitious. Look, look, verse 8. Oh, taste and see. The Lord is good. You know what David said? 
I challenge you, you've got to have a personal experience. So when our boys, I got three of them, when our boys were uh, young, uh, we'd have something like a food item they never saw before. And, and we would say to them, you need to try it. You, you may find out you like it. And when that didn't work, I would say, you need to try it. You may find out I'm going to kill you. So whichever would work, you know. So here's the deal. You could be chewing on something, and it's really pleasurable to you, and you like it. You do everything you could to communicate that pleasurable experience to the uninitiated. But there's going to come a time when, in spite of all your persuasiveness and all the rest, they're going to have to take a bite. You realize I'm talking about the relationship with the Lord. You have feasted on the bread of life. You are so glad. He means more to you than anything else. Though you don't fully comprehend his ways, you know he loves you more than anybody else. You know he'll never leave you for you. Oh, my goodness. You love the bread of life. You tell people. But at a certain point, you have to say, if you only, by faith, would sup on the bread of life, you would find nourishment, the likes of which you'll not find anywhere else. See, that's called the gospel invitation right there. Taste, see personally that the Lord is good. In fact, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, uh, for to those who fear him there is no want. Now look at this as an illustration. Young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord won't want for any good thing. Lions, oh my goodness. When you think of a predator least likely to go without food, it's like a lion. Holy moly. You don't want to run into a lion, do you? They like eat everything when they're hungry. But this is a young lion. Let's say you run into an old lion. You say, well, the old lion, you know, maybe he's not that hungry or tough or energetic anymore. Even an old lion can take you out. It's no big deal, right? But, but, but can you imagine a young lion ever going without me? The psalmist is saying, yeah, even a young lion at times could go without sufficient prey to satisfy his hunger. But you who seek the Lord will never want for any good thing. Good thing by whose definition? Ah, there's the rub. Good thing, not as we define it, but as he defines it. And that rub is behind the why question. If you are good, why? The answer is because your definition, mine, of good is entirely different than God's. I have cancer. Good? I lost my job. Good? My kid's on the run. Good? See, so we find there's a rub there. Good by whose definition? I'll tell you our standard of goodness is based on our situation, locked in time. Did you know that? We're trapped in now. Time masters us. How do I know that? 
Because you're starting to look at your watches. That's how come I know that. Locked in time. Look at I can't get back to yesterday if I wanted to. I can't get over into tomorrow. if I, I'm like here. We're here, folks. Where are you going? You can't get into the past. You can't get into the future. All you got is now time. You're stuck. You're not only stuck in time, you're stuck in space. Look at this. This thing in me cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Did you know that? It's got to go or I got to go. Look at that. That stinks. I'm locked in time. I'm locked in space. But God ain't. He is a timeless being. That's what eternal means. He's outside of time and he's out. He's transcendent. He transcends space and time. Who do you think has a better definition of good? You and me locked in now or God free from time and space. And this explains that good from God's point of view is for us to be conformed to his image, to be more like him. So his love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. And that hurts. Because there's a lot of imperfections in us. They have to be excised, surgically removed. God thinks it's good if life's circumstances, which he allows to come our way, serve the purpose of pruning us, a baggage not fit for eternity. Growth pains. Growth hurts. God says you won't lack for any good thing. And then, don't get nervous, we're not going to go through the whole psalm. I'm I'm watching the clock. I guarantee we'll get out before Brother John lets the people out. This is really good. That's my standard. You went late. Yeah, but we got out before Brother John. So look, something happens in verse 11. The praiser becomes a teacher. Come, you children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Now he's finished calling people to praise. Now he wants to teach us how to live. So you can read that on your own. I want to end with the final two verses, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 speaks of one group of people. Verse 22, a different one. Yet they have something in common. Verse 21, evil shall slay the wicked. That's the group identified in verse 21, those called wicked, evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Wicked are in view, wicked people in view in verse 21, and what is the outcome of their wickedness? Something called condemnation. Okay, that's verse 21. Now look at verse 22. The Lord redeems, now we're talking about a different group of people, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. Verse 21, those who are unredeemed. Verse 22, those who are. None of those who take refuge in him will be, here's that word again, condemned. Interesting. Verse 21 people, verse 22 people are both subject to condemnation. Why? Because all people are guilty before God. The New Testament says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is why a Christian must not arrogantly look down on a non-Christian. For such were you and I. Uh, Do you remember back that far? It's all of grace. We all have violated the laws of God. We're all guilty parties. We are all subject to condemnation. However, only verse 21 people will receive it. Verse 22 people will not. What's the difference? Verse 22 people have taken refuge in him. That's it. That's the Old Testament equivalent of 1 John. Those who have the son have the life. Those who do not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. 
the condemnation of God abides on him. Folks, this is simple. Are you a verse 21 person or a verse 22 person? If you want to be a verse 22 person, then the only way to do so is to take refuge in him. You can't say, I'm religious. I'm not as bad as the guy sitting next to me right now. I do my best. I tithe. I give money. I go on mission. You can't play that game. That doesn't move you from being a verse 21 person to a verse 22 person. This one thing, do you take refuge in the Lord? What does that mean? In his provision for sin. I run to you for refuge. Not a denomination, not a this, not a that. Not I'll try harder, not promises, not commitments that I can't keep. To move from verse 21 to verse 22. To be absolved of the stroke, which is due us condemnation, is one thing. Take refuge in the Savior. There it is. So we divide the world up amongst male and female, black and white, old and young. In my case, Jew and Gentile. We fight. We have antagonism. You know what all those categories mean to God? Zippo. But there is one that means a lot. Are you in verse 21 or are you in verse 22? With all due respect to the rest that characterizes you, this is most important. Are you characterized by verse 21 or are you characterized by verse 22? Condemnation before a holy God. Present? or removed, contingent on whether one takes refuge in him. We would be remiss if we didn't invite you to say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be like David, providing, orchestrating, strategizing, saving myself. (laughs) I want to look to you to save me from the penalty of sin. I deserve condemnation. I'm doing my best to avoid it, to hide from it, to cover up for it with good deeds, whatever it is, would you save me? That's what you came to do, right? To be a savior? I need a savior. You died, right? And won over death. Otherwise, why am I talking to you? Come into my life and give me that resurrection power. Raise me from death to life. I'll make my boast in the Lord. I'll invite people with me to magnify and exalt you. I'm dead. I'm empty. I'm lost. I'm on the run. I'm going to run out of resources of my own. I'm afflicted. My hands are tied. I can't pay you back for what I owe. I'm the wicked person in verse 21. I want to be the redeemed person in verse 22. I want your community and communion. I don't want your condemnation. Forgive me. Be my refuge from sin. There it is. You know why that's so hard? Because it's so easy. And we would rather boast as David in our own stuff. To move from verse 21 to verse 22 means you've got nothing to boast in except, as Paul said, the cross on which Jesus died. That's the avenue, the road to travel from verse 21 to verse 22. It's a road to be traveled only by faith 
in the fact that what Jesus did is everything I need to be right with God. And how in the world could anything be going right with me, relationships or any other way, if I'm not fundamentally right with the author of life? And if you make that decision, your face will be radiant when we stand before God. You'll have no cause for shame. No way. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. You're found even in Psalm 34. So to his human nature, David's, which is ours, for we're all humans, but you. You're different, high and lifted up, and yet you became like us, human to some extent. We don't fully understand to take our place. Thank you for doing so. What a substitute you are. You were murdered so that we could live. Oh, God, condemnation is due us. We know it because we practice self-condemnation all the time. But there's no reason for it. Oh, God, put it within everyone in this room in the power of your Holy Spirit to take refuge in you as Savior for whom there is no condemnation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you do and for whom you are. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Yes, Al. Ooh, the, verse 22, the name badge.